Welcome, my friends, to the Bob and Brad podcast. My name is Mike Keenitz, and today I am interviewing Dr. Lysander Jim, who is a McGill Method Master Clinician and author of the book Specific Spine. Today, we're going to be talking about everything back pain related. So without further ado, here is Dr. Jim. Welcome to the podcast, Lysander Jim. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. So we are going to be talking about your new book in this podcast called Specific Spine. But before we get into that, would you mind briefly giving us your background story? Oh, yes. I decided to become a doctor about halfway through um, my college experience. I suppose part of me was always interested in health and nutrition and well-being. And I was visiting a, a relative, a second cousin who has been in high school and studying high school biology. And I started just compulsively reading his high school biology textbook. Specifically, I was like, I got to go back over the heart valves again. And I was just trying to memorize them. And then I thought, what am I doing? I'm just learning this stuff compulsively. <laughs> it's just like, what's the point? And then that feeling made me sad. I was thinking, well, I love this. I, and then the, the, the most natural way that my love of learning and my love of health could connect was through the medical field. So it was really based on that really abstract principle that I said, okay, I'm going to push into a medical career. And, and at the time I wasn't sure I was at UC Berkeley, which has this notoriously rigorous, difficult standard. And I thought, well, you know, succeed or fail, I'm going to try to do it. And so it was then that I was a psychology major and I started adding um, more of the pre-med classes to my load. And then, so I went through that, went to medical school and, in that process, I learned about the field of physical medicine and rehabilitation. It's a field that is one of the smaller or maybe even the smallest field in the American medical subspecialties. And one of the reasons it's uh, not so well known, I think, is because it doesn't have an organ system that it exclusively focuses on the way, you know, a cardiologist treats the heart. So when people say, well, what's the purpose of your field then when there's specialists in every other field that captures some other part of the body. And I think it's really what appealed to me is the philosophy is to improve the function of the patient. And the, that's the main output is how can you treat people, you know, with metabolic or, you know, brain injuries, strokes, back injuries, and help them restore their function and gain their quality of life. And I thought that their close union with the physical therapy, occupational therapy, and other therapy fields made a lot of sense because what I had learned about health growing up is much of health wasn't from a pill. Health was from many factors. And I thought that, hey, at least there's that integration. And so I went into the field. I got this amazing education um, in my residency at the, uh, the, it was the West uh, Los Angeles VA program, which is affiliated with UCLA. And at the end of it, I still didn't have a specific idea of what I was going to do. I just had a lot of different knowledge sets. And so I ended up drifting into the field of pain medicine. It was like the first kind of job offer I received and it was a, a good job offer in many ways. And the field of pain medicine is focused on mostly chronic pain, people who are struggling to improve. And it, the philosophy of it appealed to me because the philosophy is in chronic pain, you are trying to help people feel better and you're trying to use kind of multiple approaches, including therapy, injections, surgical referrals when necessary. But mostly the reality of being a non-interventional pain doctor is you're prescribing opioids, non-steroidals, 
steroids and other pain medication. And that was not that impactful from a healing perspective. And I quickly became burnt out. So it was one December, this would be about seven, eight years ago now, um, that I received a phone call from a local sports medicine doctor. And he told me, we, he called me to tell me one of my patients and his patients as well was diverting the opioids I was prescribing her for sale. So it was, it was really shocking because she was, seemed like a really, you know, good citizen, at least had me fooled. And the opioid I was prescribing her tramadol was a pretty weak opioid. So the fact that I didn't even know it had that much street value. So what happened was he called to inform me of this. And then he said, the way your, um, you know, your employer, your clinic treats back pain is not ideal. All you do is prescribe pain medications, refer for injections, refer for surgery, refer for multiple rounds of therapy. That's not really healing your patients. And I agreed with this individual because I said, well, I'm seeing the same patients month after month. And, um, and some of, one of my patients had told me, you know, I've seen you, the clinician before you, the clinician before him, and then all the way back to the owner who no longer practiced medicine. And I said, yeah, this is clearly not working. You're just palliating the pain. And this was intersecting with the whole opioid kind of whiplash of, well, give your patients opioids, you're insensitive if you don't to, oh no, you're, you know, you're creating this crisis, which is a crisis that's only grown since that time. And, and so this uh, doctor told me, I said, well, I, I'm practicing standard of care medicine. I'm trying to do my best. And I also understand what you're saying. If you know a better way, let me know. And that's when he told me about a Canadian biomechanist professor. And he said, oh, he's written this uh, book called Low Back Disorders for Clinicians. Um, his name is um, Stuart McGill. And I, I you know, got the book. And two chapters into the book, I thought, wow, this is what I want to be. It, and there was a section in there where it talked about all the limitations that I just discussed. And it also said that it's very rare for a clinician to be able to diagnose and reverse cases of back pain. And when I read that, I thought, hey, if this is, if this is possible to diagnose and reverse back pain, that's what I want to do because that's the reason I, I don't feel happy in my career is I'm not able to make the impact that I had envisually uh, envisioned. And that kind of led me on this path to becoming eventually uh, one of the master clinicians. And, and that's kind of how I got here. I, I must admit that uh, I've looked at some of Stuart's books because Bob has them all and they are a lot <laughs> to handle. So getting your book, I actually preferred yours a little more because it's pretty simple to uh, kind of dive through and read. Oh, I, I, I hear you. I mean, I think the, the books, especially low back disorders are highly uh, rigorous. It's, it's like you could see the pure science and the purity in the background and that um, intersection. And I, I come in with less of a scientific background. So I came in, so I think Stu came in with the kind of the apex of the science and then yeah. went back and got to the apex of the clinical. And then where I feel like I started on kind of this very standard, you know, medical trajectory that wasn't that effective, discovered Stu's clinical and scientific work. And then kind of the product of that is something that's in between that's kind of, um, I, I like to think that the book um, is, is kind of true to the, all the science and also true to all my prior medical experiences. And um, it was a book I wanted to write immediately after I, I learned about all this material. But I think the thing that's missing in so many books now is context. 
So if I learned, you know, this amazing, you know, you know, methodology, but I write about it without practicing it, then I'm really not an expert in a certain sense. I think that's a lot of the expertise we have nowadays is even maybe non-clinicians who've read something and said, oh, this worked, or maybe it worked for them specifically. Um, but what I wanted to bring was, you know, when I criticize certain things about the standard medical field, I wanted to do that as an insider that also acknowledged all the benefits of it and, and then can kind of connect the, you know, I feel like I have a very unique experience in having kind of lived professionally through these different things of standard care and then elite care. And I wanted to kind of bring that to the reading audience. So before we get too in depth on this podcast, where can people find you like your website and where can they order your book? My website is uh, my clinical website, which uh, contains, you know, spine and other articles is on masterymedical.com. And my um, book is found on Amazon. I think they have pretty much a monopoly on book sales at this point. So I, uh, yeah, that's the only place I have it. Yeah. It's pre- I mean, most books are there nowadays. So do you want to get in a little more detail what inspired you to write Specific Spine? Oh, absolutely. Because what happened was I, the mater- so at one point when I was in my career and had received a call from, you know, Dr. Zippin, who was the local sports medicine doctor, I thought it was actually impossible to reverse chronic back pain. I understood that most acute back pain for most of us, fortunately, when you get a pain, it resolves automatically. Um, in most cases, and then there's a subset of those who we saw in the pain clinic where it didn't resolve automatically. And so to be able to diagnose the specific cause of pain was one of these ideas that is one of the barriers. So what I mean by that is in the medical field, there's a concept that's known as nonspecific low back pain. And that refers to a physical cause of back pain that has no clear medical cause. And that condition can be invoked in the majority of cases, 70, 80% of cases of back pain. And what ends up happening is the diagnosis of back pain has become a radiographic specialty, meaning the diagnosis that you, let's say you're a patient that you've been told you have, it's really just a replication of what was said on the X-ray and on the MRI report. So for example, if it says, you know, we'll see patients who have a diagnosis of a, an L5-S1 disc herniation, and that's the main thing on their, their MRI. Well, that's only a entryway into starting to understand the injury because uh, there's all of these different kind of complicating factors. One complicating factor is some patients don't have anything on their X-ray or MRI, but yet they're still in a lot of pain. Another complicating factor is some people have too many findings on their MRI. They may have no less than a dozen different things that you could label and be described by a radiologist. And so in that, in so one situation, you have nothing to go off radiographically. In the other, you have too much. And how you treat and how you address these problems does not, is not really, um, cannot be established with um, the imaging or the imaging report. And so uh, what's missing then is uh, something that could interpret, connect the person's symptoms, which is their experience of what's going on, the physical exam signs, and the radiology. So all of these these different lines of information have to be integrated, and that requires a sophisticated amount of um, 
clinical assessment. And so for our listeners, clinical assessment is the process by which your doctor or other clinician goes through a medical interview to have you describe the onset of what's going on, then conducts an exam, a physical examination where they're trying to look for signs and your responses to different maneuvers. And uh, in medical school, we were taught that in most cases, if you do a great clinical assessment, 80 to 90% of your work is already done. And then the additional testing is really just to cinch up that last 10 or 20% of certainty. But I think in back pain, it's been completely reversed. Most clinicians um, use the MRI as 80 or 90%. They do a very brief medical interview. They do limited to no physical assessment. And so we've, a lot of patients come in and say, wow, you're the first person who's even laid hands on me. And then they've been seeing doctors for a year or two. And um, so the idea of the book and the title specific spine is what Professor McGill discovered and his methodology, when I try to describe it to somebody, I, I try to frame it as it's a specific approach. That means instead of that non-specific back pain, we're going to give you a, hopefully a specific diagnosis that can categorize your injury beyond what the MRI says into these different categories and these different categories will kind of will aid you in terms of getting the the correct type of treatment whether that's a physical therapy approach or a uh, surgical approach which some of the patients need so for our listeners i have heard many times before that sometimes people actually have a bulging disc show up on an mri and they actually don't even experience pain so it's just to kind of show you that you shouldn't put everything into the MRI being the absolute truth, right? Absolutely. And I think if I can um, expand on that, I kind of thought about this problem for years. Like, so why is it, this is like one of the central questions in the field of low back pain. Why is it that a person can have a disc bulge on MRI and have no pain, but a different patient who has a disc bulge on an MRI <laughs> is completely disabled. And that question really lies at the heart of um, why the field is so lost today. And then I think uh, to understand that kind of problem, you have to kind of first think about what's different about the disc. So the disc in the spine has some properties that make it unlike virtually any other part of your body. And so one of the parts is that a disc is a pressure chamber. And because it's a pressure chamber, what it means is when we're sitting around and there's lower pressure, it's kind of softer. It has not that much pressure in it. But let's say you do a back squat and you put 200 pounds or more on your back. Suddenly that disc is going to build up intense pressures. And the amount of pressure a disc can build up is tremendous. I'm sure you've probably at some point in your life opened up a champagne bottle and just saw that violent explosion when you opened up the bottle. Well, the disc can contain double that pressure a healthy disc under high compression. So what that means then is because this disc is intended, evolved to generate high pressures, it's quite hostile to blood vessels. Because imagine you had a blood vessel in there and then there's all this pressure around it, you would destroy the blood vessel. It also a healthy disc for that same reason, it doesn't have nerves in the healthy state. So the surrounding capsule, the, the annulus fibrosis and the nucleus within it typically in a healthy spine does not contain nerves. 
And with the significance of some, a structure that doesn't contain nerves is if you don't have nerves, you don't feel pain. So what that means is you can damage a disc for a long time and it doesn't develop pain initially. But what happens then is a damaged disc, it becomes a bad pressure chamber. It's leaky now. And when it can no longer build pressure, nearby blood vessels and, uh, and nerves can grow into it. And in that process of nerves growing into it, the technical term is uh, it's uh, uh, peripheral sprouting is the nerves and neovascularization is the process where nearby blood vessels grow into it. So the structure that you could damage for years and not feel pain can now become painful because now it's adapted. And that's just one mechanism by which a disc can cause pain. The one most of us think about is sciatica. And sciatica, we most commonly think it causes pain because when there's a disc bulge, it's going to push on a spinal nerve or a, um, or a nerve rootlet, which is behind uh, the disc. And then so there's so those are just two separate mechanisms. And what I find happening in medicine is that if you don't have sciatica, you're often on your own because all of these other mechanisms, such as the peripheral sprouting leading to a sensitized disc, or as the disc gets uh, lax, it can get unstable and wobbly. And in these, I saw a patient like this yesterday where I struggled to make them have pain on their physical exam. And they said, you know, the reason you're not able to hurt me is because I know what you're going to do. Like you, you tell you tell me what I'm gonna you you you're like saying I'm gonna do this then you do it and you know like I'm gonna say oh like you know put pressure on your spine by pulling down on the chair and it's it's when I don't expect it that's when it hurts like when I take a step off a curb and don't expect it that's when it hurts and so what he was um, describing is really a pattern that we see with instability because if I know something's coming I can brace for it and then, and then. One other moment on that physical exam that might be of interest is I had him lay on the exam table. I said, lift your leg up for yourself. He lifted his leg. I said, put your leg down. So normally when you put a leg down, you lift it up and then you put it down, right? This is what this guy did. He lifted his leg up. I said, put it down. Boom. He would just let his leg drop. That was his movement strategy. And he was doing that in multiple areas of his life. And sure enough, when he just let the leg drop, he said, well, that kind of hurt. So I said, when did it hurt? Oh, when I let the lake, when the lake fell back down. So we created some torso stiffness, you know, push out with the sides of your abdomen, repeat that. And he still let the lake drop, but it didn't hurt anymore because he had created what's called proximal stiffness around the torso. And so that's something that when you look at an MRI, he just has an ugly disc bulge at L5S1. But then the fact that it was related to instability um, had never been identified. Yeah, the power of bracing is quite interesting when you look at that stuff. Because, I mean, uh, personally, I was in, like, a car accident, like, six years ago, going 60 miles an hour. And I saw it coming. So I really braced. Mm -hmm. And nothing happened to my spine. I broke my hand. But, you know, going 60 miles an hour to a dead stop, it kind of happens. But, yeah, I feel like just because I literally saw it and just braced everything, probably in fear or just reaction, um, yeah, I, I didn't have whiplash or anything. Yeah, I heard you. I mean, I, I had been in a car accident too, where, uh, like this taco truck or dead still on the freeway. And I just saw it out of nowhere. Cause we we're dead still the taco truck slams into the back of, you know, my minivan. And then I, I didn't expect it. And I got even at a relatively low load, a whiplash and a concussive injury that put me out for a few weeks. 
Yeah, yeah. So like just bracing, like being able to like see it ahead of time, I feel like just helps. But all right, back onto the subject here. So can you summarize the core message of specific spine for our listeners? Yes, I would say back pain, acute and chronic back pain has a specific cause. And then that cause can be determined by a detailed clinical assessment, a medical interview, a physical examination and connecting that data to um, your radiographic findings and that diagnosis which in the book i call it a functional diagnosis sets the roadmap for your recovery and gives you very specific do's and don'ts in terms of your posture your movement pattern and your exercise and just to give a quick example to listeners one of the main categorizations we try to give all of our patients is what's called a pain trigger. A pain trigger is simply a posture, a movement, or a load that uh, causes your primary symptom. So be it, oh, I got this twinge in my back, or it kind of, I have a pain that shoots down my right leg whenever I do something. There's a range of kind of different activities that can cause that thing, and it usually falls into patterns. So for example, a flexion intolerant patient is somebody who, when they round or bend forward, kind of like in a fetal type position to like tie their shoe or put their sock on, that's maybe when they'll get the symptom. And so let's say I know somebody is flexion intolerant based on what they described. Oh doc, it hurts when I put on my socks. Based on the exam, I had them kind of sit slouchy in a chair for me and that generated their pain. Then I'll look at their therapy exercises and what's kind of surprising is sometimes I'll see multiple exercises that replicate that type of movement or postural pattern. And then so that would usually suggest to me that presuming that they had the same clinical findings that the, you know, the doctor or the PT who prescribed that regimen didn't really understand what was hurting their back. And the, the risk of that is if you keep pushing people into their painful triggers, you're creating at heart not just discomfort, but more tissue damage. The pain, what people forget about pain is pain is a signal of damage. That's why our hands, I grabbed a hot pan the other day mindlessly, and then your hand just reflexively pulls away. And, and so that's really what the pain in your body is trying to tell you. But most of the people who probably listen to the podcast and you know maybe a lot of them are athletic background, they've been taught to push through pain in their personal and their professional lives. And there's a time to push into the into pain. I mean, I was a cross-country runner in high school. Pain is part of the deal. But then there's pain of exertion, there's pain of training, and there's the pain of injury. So what you want to do is be able to distinguish those. So if, if something is provoking a primary symptom, then it's not appropriate. But what we find in my experience over the last, it's been over five years now as a, uh, a McGill clinician, is if you have the um, the diagnosis right, and then you tailor a plan to it, which usually does not require surgery in, in many cases, then you, you're able to reverse cases that could be ongoing for months or even years. Just You're just giving, what I tell patients is, the healing is really done by your body, and I'm a guide who's trying to tell you, I think this is what your back will want from you. And you're creating more favorable conditions that will potentially allow healing. And of course, there's exceptions where no matter how great your posture movement exercise, you're not going to heal from this injury without a surgery. So I saw in this last week, two patients who I said, surgery is your best route. One I've been working with for a while, 
Um, and then, but they were just pre progressively worsening. They had a, a slippage spondylolisthesis injury that just was relentlessly getting worse. So it was a point where I could, I hurt when I stand, but it was good when I sat. And then now it's like sitting and standing and even laying down, lying down are kind of making that gluteal sciatic pain worse. And another who had simpler, um, another who had a big disc bulge pushing on a nerve and they had severe compression intolerance. So this person, when they laid on their back, um, they had their right leg bent, like almost like the, um, and then just the act of lowering her leg onto the table was starting to ramp up her pain. So that's more of a neural tension where the nerve is getting, the nerve root is getting grabbed by the nerve or, or by the disc, nerve is grabbed by the disc. And when the person's laying, it's kind of pulling it so that that was the mechanism we were seeing with her. Yeah, for our listeners, if you're wondering why I have so many videos on back pain, it's because everyone's back pain is different and different things work. <laughs> I mean, you're basically describing this right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think even, let's say, take a disc injury, a disc injury, depending on where precisely that disc is bulging, maybe the center of the canal or to the side, how much instability has resulted how much reactive bone growth that happens usually in the older patients from an original disc injury, those are all going to create different syndromes that require kind of a different approach. I think the way Stu says it is one spine's medicine is another's poison. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard that. That makes sense. Though. <laughs> yes. So in your opinion, what are the most common myths about back pain? I'll, I'll start with three myths. The first myth is one that I shared before, which is if you have chronic back pain and you've done their physical therapy and you've done other interventions, there's nothing more that can be done um, for you. That was a myth I had as a pain medicine doctor, just trying to palliate with opioids and other medications. In fact, if you get a functional diagnosis and kind of target that they're like more of a physical therapy style approach, many of those patients We've, I've seen experienced it firsthand. We see it in our community regularly. Those conditions can be reversed and healed. A second myth is that pain is okay. It's okay if someone tells you with back pain to deadlift the heavy weight and that if you just keep pushing through it, then it's mind over matter and you're going to heal. More likely is you're going to destroy the patients and kind of you're going to crush, you're going to crush their back. And because if we treat pain as a signal of um, tissue injury, then increasing pain is really increasing um, tissue injury. And what happens is as the tissue gets damaged, it doesn't get more robust, it gets more fragile. And not just physically, you're going, some of the people we see are mentally very fragile because of they've been tortured by their chronic pain. And the third one I would connect is when there's this big movement about whether back pain is even, um, a physical process. And probably the biggest voice in that is Dr. John Sarno's Healing Back Pain. It's a book that talks about how disc bulges, there's no reason that disc bulge or spinal stenosis should hurt. And that people are really just experiencing, we're seeing a epidemic of anxiety and the anxiety is causing the muscle spasm. And all you really have to do for your back pain patients is relieve their anxiety. And, and then their back pain will go away. And this is kind of like a survivorship bias situation. So we have, you know, when I kind of, 
I used to teach these courses where we're talking about biopsychosocial pain to people who failed every other measure. And looking back on it, I sort of cringe because I'm like, here I am, someone who's not suffering from chronic pain, telling other people that the chronic pain is in their heads. And then, and a lot of these people I hadn't even seen as patients, they were other patients in the practice. And what I recognize now is, yes, some people do really have a psychosocial type of pain, like where if you relieve their anxiety or their depression, uh, and they do some of the techniques laid forth by Dr. Sarno, like journaling your fears and anxieties, there's a lot of people online and a few that I've encountered in, you know, real pra normal practice who it makes them go, makes the pain go away. And so all that proves is that, yes, some patients are psychosocial. But the, the dangerous generalization of that book is saying just because some people are psychosocial, we're all psychological patients if we have back pain that persists beyond a certain time. And so for about a year, I used to work in occupational medicine. And in that field, what we do is we see people who work grocery stores and usually other physically demanding jobs who develop back and other injuries. And I noticed with, there was a disconcerting amount of psychosocial diagnosis labeled onto the patient. And, and what that did is if I can say, Mike, your back pain isn't from your work, it's because you're such a depressed and anxious person, then your employer is actually not culpable for damages that may arise in you. So I see it used kind of as a gaslighting technique. And, and that's not to say that psychological factors are not important. I think it's far more common that someone with chronic back pain is going to develop devastating psychological consequences, then the person who has psychological problems just starts imagining that their right leg is tingling and on fire. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective to look at. You don't really commonly think of the anxiety part to pain, but I remember a teacher in school told us, if you ever get a person's pain scale on a Monday, it's probably going to be worse than the person's pain scale on a Friday. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> We call that my mind, like, oh, the yeah. weekend's here. I'm in a better mood. My pain's not as bad, but it's yeah, that that's true too. I mean, what happens is if you, no doubt, psychology influences your pain perception. I mean, even let's talk about like something that's non-painful. Let's just say something that irritates you. Let's say um, like someone cuts you off on the road. Are you more likely to have road rage if you're already depressed? Yeah, I, I would say so. Or if you're very sleep, you're very sleep deprived. So all of those factors that would kind of overwhelm you with a pretty, you know, harmless stimulus of someone just cutting you off in traffic. Well, imagine that stimulus now is your own body's pain that you don't necessarily fully understand. So I think that because most back pain for treatment has not been that effective, usually what you see is the less effective the treatment, the more people can come up with all these kind of psychological or even supernatural um, kind of explanations. I mean, I've even heard things like, oh, the, uh, you know, it might be back pain might be arising from a chakra if you're having like, you know, employment difficulties or something like that, which is sort of bizarre because, you know, we see people who, you know, most of them have jobs, some of them don't, you know, it's like there's, you know, we can, the less effective the treatment, the more I think any explanation can go because no one, you know, people just get this kind of learned helplessness. Yeah. So my next question is, how do you approach the complex issues of diagnosing back pain? Because what we've talked about so far, it can be pretty confusing. Yeah, I, I think that the way we thought about it in medical school is uh, usually the 
the main thing we're kind of tracking is the pain and there's some secondary symptoms too. But when you look, think about pain, we think about what provokes the pain, the pain triggers, what relieves the pain, what's the quality of the pain? Like, is it achy, dull, sharp, et cetera? And how does it come on? Is it kind of like a sudden pain that disappears? Uh, or is it a pain that it comes on and it kind of sticks around for a while? And so these different patterns kind of give different clues. So just using a broad example, if I came to um, the emergency room and I said, I have a chest pain, that evaluation is going to be very different from me having a back pain. But these are some of the signs that are guiding. And then you also look at the overall person. So if I go into the emergency room as a 20 year old with chest pain, that's going to be looking different from, you know, me being nearly 40 or 50 and coming kind of saying that um, I have the symptom. And so I think in, in a nutshell, we're, what we're looking at is a uh, complex pattern recognition. And then the more sophisticated the clinician, kind of the more different subcategories that we can have. So here's one basic category. Is the pain going to the glute or the leg, or is it in the back? So that's sort of like a sciatica screen question. And then, um, and so then after we get the medical interview where we can explore those symptoms, the physical exam, the purpose of it largely is to move stress to different parts of the spine. So let's say I have, I have a person peacock, push your chest forward. So what I just did is I put a lot of stress into the back of my spine because I'm arching it towards the back. Or another person, if we say, you know, kind of slouch down, now we're migrating stress to the front of the disc. And here's, here's some different patterns. So for example, the patient I saw yesterday, he would just on his own accord, just kind of pop his chest forward. And then he would say, my back is going, my back is cracking. And then he would kind of release again. And so what that suggests is that, hey, we're seeing self-manipulating behavior, like where they're just kind of adjusting the, um, themselves. You're getting a crack, which is a sign of instability. And we're also getting the primary pain symptom. And this primary pain symptom notably was exactly over that L5S1 region, like right at that base of the spine, which is where his disc herniation was. So now you can see there's a convergence of a lot of different types of information that are saying, well, L5S1 is the probable pain generator. There's instability based on that factor. And then now I'm getting all this, all these clues about how I could help the person. And so for the rest of the examination following the physical exam, I was able to give the person enough tools where their trigger, which had been happening quite regularly, would happened only once or twice. And, and those, both of those were during periods of the patient's inattention. They kind of got distracted by something, moved their spine, tweaked themselves, and then we quickly winded it down with getting them into the right posture again. When you're evaluating some of your new patients, have you ever found that they don't really have back pain and it's more SI joint dysfunction, or do they normally rule that out before they come to you? That's one of the questions that some of our savvy patients bring to us is they say, I've been told I have SI joint pain and some of them do have SI joint pain and, and determining that is part of the assessment. And that's a great question because that's something that can, some of the SI joint features like pain that's kind of off to the side, really close to the glute, 
locationally, that can resemble sciatica a lot. So then the question can then become, well, how would you distinguish an SI joint pain from a sciatica? And so there are certain stress um, relieving maneuvers that can be done. So one of our patients who had an unstable SI joint, um, we use a technique where we kind of put our hands on either side of the um, kind of hip area and we kind of push down, compressing it. So that's a stabilizing maneuver analogous to what you would get from an SI joint belt. And for some people, once you create that stability for them, their walking is better. When you push that SI joint, it doesn't hurt anymore. So that's another clue. Uh, one other clue we do is sometimes there's a, a test called a, a fist pulse test. And that is, we're trying to create a little bit of like a shock wave into the sacral area. So people, um, the patient might bridge up and then they place their sacrum on all the way down on the um, the hand and then with their pulse, some people with unstable sacrums that will hurt them a lot. By contrast, and a uh, SI joint, uh, a sciatica patient, usually that gluteal area pain might be provoked by something like a uh, a straight leg raise test. Or the other very interesting one is the the head can can control or affect how the nerves move. So a lot of patients with um, sciatica when they look down they actually pull that nerve and create symptoms. So that would point more towards a sciatica than an SI joint. And some patients to kind of add to the next layer have both. So then <laughs> you sometimes are saying you actually have four or five things. And then, so it's really identify, well, what are the kind of the locations and types of pain they have? And then, so that's, that's kind of what keeps um, things kind of very interesting is at heart, every patient has all these like intricacies to their presentation. And sometimes we find not just they don't have a back condition, they might have a hip condition that's looking like a back condition too. Yeah. My, uh, my mother, when she was in her fifties actually had to have a mild back surgery. She's a small person. And then she was also having hip pain though. So she actually had to get a hip replacement. So she had both, but it was in the same area because she did the back first and then realized the hip was super arthritic. So it can be confusing. Yes, yes. <laughs> so what are some key exercises or movements you recommend for maintaining a healthy back? The ideal movement, let's start with posture, is the formulation I have for that is let's say you have no back condition. The best posture for you is one that's called the uh, neutral, also known as the elastic equilibrium. And what that means is it's the part, it's the shape of my spine that doesn't have extra kind of stress. So I'm sitting kind of close to it right now. So what happens is let's say I'm sitting in a pretty neutral position right now. I'll even stand up here. And so what happens is if I start rounding my spine, I'm creating pull and stretch to the back of my, um, some of the ligaments and to the disc. And if I extend, I'm putting extra load to the back of the spine as I'm arching onto it. So there's some spot in between that creates a, um, a lack of either stretch or slackening of the nerves and on the discs. And that's a good starting um, part. And then posture, the other part to emphasize is it has to be dynamic. So we usually think about posture as when we're stationary, sitting, standing, lying down, but really posture is all the time. Posture is how I walk, how much I walk. And really the ideal 
posture is one that features a lot of variety and with throughout the day. And that's what many of us are missing in our lives now because we do office jobs. We were kind of talking heads a lot of the day. And um, so that's the start. The movements, we kind of talk about some of the focuses is how do you get in and out of in a chair? Because that's what's called a squat pattern. So where you're using your, um, your hips and knees to kind of get up and down. There's a, a movement pattern called a lunge pattern that looks like a quarterback running out the clock, kind of taking one knee. And that's a good movement pattern for many to grab something on the floor and just trying to learn how to pull and twist through the hips instead of twisting the spine to kind of create movement. Like if I turn my whole body versus if I um, pull in the, uh, instead of kind of creating a, a twisting, torquing force on my spine. So trying learning the principle there is, can you create movement through your most powerful muscles, which is your hip gluteal complex rather than your spine or your knees. And so that's for movement. For exercises, one of the references is the McGill Big Three. And that helps for a, for most people who don't have significant back pain or joint injuries, that's helpful. For many patients who do have back injuries, it, it still works as well. But um, I, what I tell all patients is every exercise is a tool and then so what's a good exercise selection? It has these features. One is the exercise is giving something to you that you're lacking and, and need. So let's say for my patient with instability, they need torso endurance, they need torso stiffness. And so the big three was a great match for him. It also has to not overwhelm your back injury. So some patients are so brutal or so well, kind of fragile rather that every um, a lot of exercises will hurt them. So we have to sometimes avoid exercise or create what's called a regression, which are versions of exercises that are even easier. And so it's really, so ideal exercise kind of meets you where you are. It gives you something you need and it doesn't damage your back or some other part of your body. So for completely non-spinal reasons, let's say some people have bad knee arthritis, they can't get on all fours to do the bird dog. Some people have shoulder problems. They can't do a side plank and kind of put their body weight onto their shoulders. And so the book and um, features kind of some more standard exercises that many people can do. It features regressions. And one of the um, things I'm proud of in the book and how I think of kind of being of a kind of a cautious conservative mindset is a lot of them focus on uh, every exercise describes why you shouldn't do this exercise. So yeah. contraindications. Yeah, you have you have them laid out really well in the book because you basically break it down in the chapter headings, um, mm -hmm. essentially what the exercises are for, and they have good illustrations. And where are some of them? Here's some, like here's the side plank you're talking about. So you pretty much have. Oh yeah, yeah. It talks about like uses, and then it gets into don't do if, and yep. that, and then that's um, partly how I think about things is you first you kind of just know, well, why would I even do this for somebody? Because when we get kind of one level deeper, we think, why should exercise even help people get healthier? That part, that it seems like a simple question, but it took me a long time to first uh, see it in action, to believe the impact of exercise. I mean, as somebody who did some athletics, you know that your body makes adaptations, like how much faster I could get or bigger I could get if I trained a certain way. 
But I think in back pain, if you think about uh, the different types of injury mechanisms, having certain types of loads and fitness is going to be helpful. Just take a climber, for example. A lot of people struggle to sit upright, or if they do sit upright, they kind of they're forcing it. They're not really it's not very natural to them. And that could well be because their their back muscles are just not that well conditioned. So they can simulate a good posture, but really they're creating some odd stresses by the way they're pulling themselves. And let's say those muscles naturally get stronger and stiffer. And let's just say if I climb more, for example, which uses a lot of lat and spinal extensor engagement, it actually feels second nature to sit upright. But whereas if those exercises are missing, then I, I'll feel a tendency to slouch and then I have to kind of force my way up. So I think that uh, these muscular balance and can take you a long way. Yeah, oftentimes if you're stuck in one pattern too, you get pretty rigid. So just exercising is going to get movement throughout your body and loosen up those muscles that are tight. Yes, yes. Movement is definitely kind of the right types of movement, the right combinations of movements. It's healing in kind of physical and mental ways. Yeah, I've discovered since I've been working for Bob and Brad online more, um, I have to make myself take walking breaks. I do run at least. But when you're in a clinic, Walking around half the time, I do three miles throughout the day nonchalantly. Now I'm <laughs> no back pain, and now I'm sitting at home at my desk all day, and I get stiff back. Yeah, yeah, you're not alone in that. I mean, like, it, it's uh, – I remember when I was working in the hospital, and then you're like, okay, you got an admission in the ER, and then you're running around, and then versus in, – and I'm mostly outpatient now. So, you know, we're just talking heads, explaining things, and often it's uh, – we're in a chair. Yeah, the, the, the – <laughs> The nursing home facilities and picking up people actually got me some workout throughout the day. So Absolutely. So how does your book tailor advice for different types of back pain and their causes? Because I noticed in your first chapter, you really go through each different type of injury people can have. The I, I think it starts with just uh, the way the book is structured is to tell people the principles of it. So then, and then, so then the, so let's say one of the principles is you have to tailor the exercises to your pain triggers. For example, you have to avoid exercises that replicate the pain trigger. And so the different injury mechanisms um, often describe patterns of movement error, postural error, and exercise error associated with them. And then on the exercise portion, it might say, oh, this, you know, patients with extension tolerance might not do so well with this exercise or there's another category that's called compression intolerance, which is when the spine loses some of its ability to tolerate load upright. So in the most extreme forms, people just say it's agonizing to sit, to stand, um, or even to walk when it gets really bad. So then, um, so I think that there's some of the exercises avoid compression. For example, the bird dog has, it limits compression in one critical way, which is when a person is on their hands and, and, and on all fours, their spine is horizontal across space. So then even though they, we saw a patient who with, um, had compression intolerance, so I had her do a wall plank where you're basically just leaning into the wall. And you would think that's an easy exercise that should not hurt somebody. But because of the compression intolerance, it hurt her. But when we had her do the bird dog, which is way more challenging because there wasn't that compressive force, she tolerated it great. And so there's kind of, What's easier or harder, it's it's often patient specific. And some of those 
um, details can be quite surprising. So I remember recently we had a patient where we did what's called a facet load, where you extend the spine, arch it one way. So you're creating a lot of pressure on one side. And then that patient was saying, wow, that actually makes my sciatica feel better. And then we repeated the maneuver onto the other side of the sciatica. And she said, that makes it worse. So what that told me probably is, even though you would expect this to create a lot of load, it does, but it's creating load in an area that is, is um, not stressful. And it's actually opening up the neural frame and canal on the other side. And then so that's kind of, this is sort of the hypothesis testing we run through to, to tell ourselves um, what the injury can be. And one tool we sometimes use you know, at the risk of biasing ourselves is sometimes uh, we don't necessarily look at the MRI before seeing the patient. Because then if you create a hypothesis of what the injury is and then look at the MRI, you can be sure that you're not biasing yourself. And so there's cases where you might do the reverse, like you might see a red flag sign and then you're like, oh, I don't wanna even lay hands on this patient until I see what their imaging looks like. Or maybe they're particularly old and fragile and then you might wanna say, well, I wanna make sure maybe they don't have osteoporosis before I proceed with certain types of maneuvers. Sure. Um... So I know we talked about the importance of posture and back health, but is there anything more you want to elaborate on with that subject? Yes, I would say posture and movement quality are truly the foundation of spine recovery for most people. So for most people who don't need surgery, and that's that's really 90 plus percent of people with chronic back pain, they don't really need a surgery or or maybe there's not even a surgery that exists for their specific problem. The This concept of uh, posture is critical. And what's interesting is sometimes um, people doubt that, like they think, well, I'm not sure posture, that sounds like an everyday thing. It's so familiar that we kind of don't realize how important it is. And I can often kind of get sort of buy-in in terms of that concept, because I might not always find a posture that makes you feel great right away, but I can often find a posture that makes a patient feel a little bit better. And I can almost always find a, page, a posture that makes them feel a whole lot worse, sometimes quite rapidly. And so, so then if posture didn't matter, it's like, well, you just had so much pain in this one position and a you know, relative relief with another. And in some patients, a surprising number, if they're in the right posture, the pain winds down very rapidly too, which is one of the signs that how they've been kind of unwittingly conducting themselves has been a source of pain. So you can create a world where everybody had the ideal posture and the ideal movement pattern, then a lot of the chronic back issues would mitigate or even disappear. And I remember when I first learned about the McGill method, my first contact with Stu was I had a podcast back then because called the PM&R podcast. And I interviewed Stu and he said, one of the observations he mentioned in his book is that you'll often see pa patients who come into your clinic with the type of posture that they're intolerant to. And then <laughs> I thought, and at the time I asked him like, well, why, why would that be? Why would people just be driving it? And I don't think there's like, there, to me, I, I kind of having seen that pattern myself now multiple years, I think that part of the reason they are your patient is because they don't know how that, how they're posturing themselves is making them um, chronically hurt. And so one of the key ideas of chronic pain so chronic pain in, in like pain medicine is often described as pain that's more than three months or six months. 
of a continuous or intermittent nature. So it, it might mean, oh, I'm getting hurt, you know, three times a week, pretty bad, but in between I'm fine. But I think the way Stewart uh, describes it is many of our patients actually have multiple acute attacks. So it means that they're actually unwittingly hurting their spine multiple times within like a day, let's say, and then that's creating a period of pain that kind of just starts to melt into each other. So if I keep, uh, so let's say I, I get up from, you know, get up in the morning, I round my spine to wash my face. I sit in a, in a small sedan, I drive in, I sit in clinic. I can actually, if I'm not mindful of my posture, I could create hours upon hours of, of flexion stress on my spine. And then I just think, well, pain is a continuous feature, so it's chronic. But what might be missing is that had I done things differently, positioned myself differently, I would have a, um, a lot less pain. So that that's why um, knowing the pain triggers and resolving it when possible is kind of the first step to winding down the pain. And then, and then from there, when a patient is pain-free, this is another kind of important um, thing I try to impart to patients, it doesn't mean you're healed. So people, they'll go through periods where they're in pain and then it goes away, then they start lifting heavy again, or they don't get, you know, seek any professional treatment and then their pain comes back rapidly. So then they, they think, well, that's odd. I, I was healed already. It's like, no, winding down the pain is only the first part of the process. And then the second part of the process is for your spine to gain robustness. And that usually takes a whole lot longer than the time it takes to wind down the pain fully. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Most spine surgeons tell people, even after surgery, if you have no pain, you have to wait quite a while to actually do stuff to let everything heal up. I mean, same if you don't have a surgery, like if you have some type of disc bulge, you get it where it's not painful anymore. And then you repeat the movement that caused it. It's more than likely going to flare up if you're doing it too quick. Yeah, it makes sense because we can see this in exterior injuries, like a cut. We know like when we get a cut, it stops hurting pretty quickly if it's a superficial cut. But the, t the process of scabbing over and that light scar that forms over it, that could take many weeks or months after their, that initial um, kind of injury. And then so, so I think that what makes it harder in a spine is the spine is a lot like a black box, right? You, can't, you can see a cut, you can't see your spine. You know, so then what the only kind of clues you often have um, are from the patient. So then, so really that only the patient knows exactly what they're feeling. You can see discomfort on them and so forth. But, but then let's just say you show two MRIs with the, you know, one person with that same looking MRI can have no pain and another can be in tremendous pain. And then it's, it's really the, the symptoms and that are going to differ in them. Sure. So this is a fitting question since they're both doing this right now. <laughs> what advice do you have for people who sit at a desk all day? I would say the first uh, thing is to get up frequently to have very um, variety. So I think, so right now I'm, I'm sitting, but actually I'm at a sit stand desk. So I think that uh, it, that's one strategy people can use if they're still fixed in place. You can use a sit stand desk. You can kind of take frequent walk breaks. When there's this one practitioner, I forget who they call it sort of like a movement snack. So then it's just like, just having that, you know, rather than accumulating all of this, hey, I'm going to sit for eight hours and then I'm going to train very hard at the gym. What's probably more healing is actually, oh, I'm going to every you know, 15, 30 minutes kind of walk about. Another thing that can help many people is using a, a back support. So having a well-fitting chair and we get this uh, 
I think we get a great education in this in physical medicine and rehabilitation because uh, when we used to um, do wheelchair prescriptions. So for when you're giving some of these people wheelchair prescriptions, that's their everything. Like that's where they get around. That's where they're sitting around. That's where they're, um, you know, at leisure. And so if you get your wheelchair prescription wrong, then you can actually cause discomfort, pain, and even devastating injuries like a pressure ulcer. And so I try to take some of that same thinking into, well, what are you going to do for a patient who notices has back pain and the chair is optimal? So here's some of the principles. One is how long your seat pan is, like the bottom that um, of the seat, that's a big deal. So many chairs are um, excessively um, long. So an optimal seat pan length allows you to scoot all the way to the back of the chair. And it gives you about a hand's width um, between the, uh, the end of the seat and where your calf is. So if it's too small of a seat pan, you're going to create a lot more pressure over a small area. And if it's too long, it's going to force you into some sort of flex position, or you're just going to sit at the edge of the chair. Another is if your back, your chair rest can take off some of the loads. And then that usually is supported by a back rest. Like there's the lumbar from um, BackFit Pro. That one is an inflatable bladder that can enlarge or shrink. And so people can tailor that and put that in their lumbar spine. And yet another thing that I rarely see in chairs is the kind of angle of the chair. So most, let's say cars, for example, the chairs are kind of, let's say I'm sitting here, the chair is angled upward. You're kind of cradled in, kind of collapsed in on the chair. But then the optimal chair seat pan position for relieving back stress is actually a more open angle. So if you put it, like let's say a tennis ball on the back of the chair, it would roll kind of towards the front or off the front of the chair. And that's like another feature that can kind of open up the hips, transmit stress to the hips and open up the spine too. So those are three ideas for um, sitting. Yeah, I my old vehicle I had, you couldn't adjust the seat that much. And when I got a newer one, <laughs> it's such a huge difference. Like the oh, seat yeah. pan could go up and down. The lumbar support could come in. I'm just like, oh my gosh. I'm like, why was I stuck in this old car forever? I know. Like, yeah, especially for even, you know, I'm not the tallest guy, but I frequently, I just generally drive SUVs just because even at my size, like the, you know, I've, I've driven Civics and other cars. It's just, the seat is literally so close to the floor. There's no choice but for you to get kind of, kind of cradled yeah. and kind of crunched in like that. Yeah. Your knees are above your hip joint. So it's just like puts you in that flex position all the time. Yeah. On chairs. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. a great way of putting it. Yeah. Like if your knees should be a little bit below your hip joint, that's what an open hip angle looks like. Yeah. And I often had to throw a little throw pillow or a rolled up towel behind my low back if I had a two hour trip or more. <laughs> Yeah, don't miss that vehicle. Okay, <laughs> next question is, can you explain the concept of spine hygiene as discussed in your book? Spine hygiene is the deliberate avoidance of postures, movements, and activities that hurt your back. And so that's the roadmap for, I think the way Brian Curl, who's one of the McGill clinicians and a world-class powerlifter puts it, it's, it's a 24-7, 365 endeavor. So when we're waking, we have kind of conscious control of our muscles. And when we're lying down, we lose that, but we can compensate for it with supports. So there's a subset of patients who their worst pain is in the morning. And sometimes they say my only pain is actually really in the morning. 
and or or they might even say I wake up frequently with pain at night, but I'm usually fine during the day. That might be somebody who's just wrongly positioned. Perhaps their mattress is too hard or too slack, or they're laying on their slide their side and they're only supporting their head and they have nothing between um, their knees, which kind of helps preserve the pelvic angle, or they don't have anything kind of on the side of their back, which supports the lumbar curve. And so uh, I think that spine hygiene is no matter your performance level, post-surgical or you're an elite athlete, that's what gives your spine more capacity. Because even if you have a lot of capacity, you don't really want to waste it on bad posture. You want to save it for your performance domain. Sure. Yeah. I, uh, I actually bought a knee pillow recently. I don't know if you ever heard of those or when I it's... sleep on my side. Oh yes. Those, how has it been for you? Oh, it was great. I, cause I commonly sleep on my side of my stomach and my, you know, if you're half and half, you're, you're basically torquing your pelvis. So your low back is just rotated at like a 45 degree angle. And I'd wake up and you know, you just have the stiffest back. So I don't like the big pillows are fine, but they get too hot often. So it's, yeah, it's just like a little wedge thing. You just put in there and it keeps my pelvis and like, you really can't rotate over like it, it, it it's when you're sleeping. So it just really helped. And it's, just like a little $30 pillow. I have no affiliation with them, but I know I wish I had the patent on that too. <laughs> <laughs> Bob had one. He told me about it and I was like, Oh, you're nerd. And then like two years later, I bought one. So <laughs> and I was like, I guess, I guess you're right, Bob. <laughs> so how do you recommend people balance rest and activity when dealing with back pain? It, that the, I would say, in general, patients should be as active as they reasonably can without pushing over into pain. So let's say we have a 65-year-old patient with spinal stenosis. One of the hallmarks of that condition is a limited walking tolerance. They might feel a, a two-sided sciatica-type pain with, let's say, when they walk for more than 10 minutes. And so what um, these individuals often do is they'll say, well, okay, I walk 10 minutes, then my glute starts hurting and then I take a break. And so what I try to educate them on is, is more tactical is, well, if you know your tolerance is 10 minutes, don't use pain as a signal because then that's, you've already crossed the line by the time you're feeling the pain. Maybe take a break five to seven minutes in. And for stenosis patients, depending on what relieves them, one thing that relieves some of them is what's called traction, which is a decompressive force. You can do that through um, a, a McGill technique called the park bench decompression, where you're leaning on a heavy furniture or a park bench, and then you're kind of creating a pulling force across the spine in a controlled manner. And so for, let's say, I have a patient who feels good with traction, let's say they walk six minutes, they do traction, walk another six minutes. Now they've pieced together 12 minutes of pain-free walking in a row, albeit with that break, rather than 10 minutes that drifts them into pain. And sometimes that break for a lot of stenosis patients sitting feels great. So walk six minutes, take a you know 30 second, one minute breather and then walk the rest of the way. And in that way, the, the nerves and the tissues can calm down. And usually it's a virtuous cycle. The less pain you feel, the more resilient your back gets and it takes more. And so then that's where uh, we kind of often educate patients on. If you don't feel pain, sometimes people feel like it's, too good to be true. And then they start manipulating themselves. Oh, you know, they'll say, well, will it hurt if I do this? If I hurt while I do that? 
And, and of course, gradually it does hurt again because they've been stressing their spine intentionally. So it's almost like uh, it, it's like a long-term kind of process. And then in, depending on the injury, some people remarkably fast within weeks, their pain is wound down to minimal to no levels. And other people, it can take many months or even over a year but you generally don't want to see a reversal of the direction. Like let's say they're just progressively worsening. Then is it, is there a new condition? Is the old conditioning worsening? And then, and sometimes that progressive decline can, uh, especially if it's neurological can be a, a surgical indication as can intractable pain become a surgical indication for, you know, let's say a disc injury that can be operated upon. Sure. Yeah. I would, do you ever have, uh, well, most people, I feel like they have stenosis and they're 65 usually use a walker anyway, but I'm suppose if they weren't and they did, they might get some relief. Yeah. For a few reasons. I mean, one is a walker. If they kind of push into it, it has a decompressive effect on the spine. Mm -hmm. Second, when you people, stenotic patients, their, their spines are often relieved by flexion. So when you kind of stoop over and use a walker, that stooping itself might be a healing uh, not healing, but a relieving mechanism. And that's why in the medical textbooks there, there's a thing called the shopping cart sign. And that's where the synodic patient, they're kind of leaning over and pushing the shopping cart. They feel better because flexion opens up certain parts of the spinal canal and the neural foraminal area where the nerves are getting irritated. Yeah. Shopping cart engine's pretty common. I see it many times when I go to Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> So I know we talked about this a little bit earlier, but what is your view on the use of pain medication for back pain? That's a, that's a great question because I, I have per, uh, professional experience. First two years of my career, I was prescribing pain medications. And I would say, um, I would kind of make it a more general topic, which is the topic of palliation, which is the idea of relief. What if you relieve something, but you don't cure or fix it? Palliation is, I think, itself a noble endeavor. I mean, we see this in hospice where patients are dying and you know you're not going to change the course of their, their lives, but then you can make the, the last days or months they have feel better. And let's say the person isn't dying, they just have a chronic condition that there's not really a fix or cure in sight and their pain levels are quite severe. Palliation you know, with pain medications is essential in some cases. And so I know the focus has swung to the overuse and the dangers of the medications. And I think that using the right tool is important. Let's say somebody has a high risk of an opioid addiction, they have other drug addictions and so forth. You know, you don't, uh, you want to use categories of drugs that they're more likely to tolerate. And, and now we can get some um, insight from even genetic studies. There's a whole branch of medicine called pharmacogenomics. And that looks at some of the uh, metabolism of medications and especially of the liver, which is responsible for a lot of um, processing of medications. And that might explain in part why some people have relief with some medications, no relief with other medications, or even very severe side effects with others. And so tailoring some pharmaceutical measures can be helpful. And even when we look at opioids, it's, they're overused, but there's a place for them too, for certain subsets of, of patients with back pain. Let's say the person's not abusing it, they're getting meaningful relief from it. So I think it's not quite as black and white 
And what was confusing is I think the CDC was making it into a black and white issue. And I always thought that if it is a black and white issue, why don't you just outlaw the use of opioids for all non-cancer type pain? Because it was always considered respectable for cancer type pain. And so I think that uh, you want to kind of select a pain medicine that's effective. Some people just take it habitually even when it's not effective. Another thing you want to consider is what's the safest pain medication and what some of the scientific literature would suggest is the safest pain medications might be things in the cannabinoid family. Like so cannabis, THC, CBD, some of those are as potent as opioids, but without with minimal risk of um, overdose deaths, for example. And so we got we've gotten to a point where opioids are responsible for over 100,000 deaths a year in America. I think when I was in practice, it was closer to what, like maybe 60,000 deaths. So it's only um, gotten worse. And so I, so I would say opioids be, there's a lot of reservations that should be applied to prescribing them. And even things that are more familiar, like non-steroidals, like ibuprofen or naproxen, these are non-steroidals that um, anti-inflammatories that can be gotten, you know, without a doctor's prescription, anyone to go to Walmart and pick it up. But those medications have a lot of risks too. And one little known fact is these medications can cause uh, GI bleeds and GI bleeds from NSAIDs are the 15th leading cause of death in America. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, so then, and that's overlooking the fact that they can also contribute mm -hmm. to heart disease and, and, um, and strokes as well, because they disrupt a uh, blood flow. Yeah, a lot of chronic use without actually getting blood work looked at. I'm sure people are. Oh, yeah. Aware. Yeah. Without the blood work, you won't see the liver toxicities that are building up and you won't see the kidney um, um, failure that can emerge with some of these medications. And so I think that uh, they, the more you use it, the more likely some of these effects are to um, materialize. So I would advise people to, if they need them, to do it under the supervision of, of, a primary or a pain doctor who's regularly, um, you know, mitigating the risks for them. Sure. So my last question is, how does your book address the needs of athletes with back pain or people that just want to become more functional again? Uh, it does it in two ways. I would say athletic individuals, it's almost like even though they're super fit in a certain way, when they develop a back injury, they that injury becomes the, they turn into a rehabilitation patient. So all of that stuff about spine hygiene and, and exercises appropriate to spinal rehabilitation would apply to the athletes. I added an additional chapter at the end because I find that the, the exercises associated with strength and performance are kind of more glamorous and sexy. So a lot of times people like, there's like, they're like, you know, you're teaching them a bird dog and they want to do a goblet squad and so <laughs> forth. And then, and if they can, I'll show them how to do it too. But uh, there's a, uh, a the last chap ma uh, major chapter anyway is on exercises for performance, and then that's highly domain specific. I mean, some athletes, you know, like you know, yogis, they don't need to be very strong. For others, like powerlifters, strength is kind of the primary kind of ingredient they need, and most athletes kind of need a balance of kind of different um, maneuvers. So there's kind of spine related exercises like. Um, goblet uh, squats, carries, and other exercises, um, which also feature those precautions for when to use and when not to use them. 
Yeah, I was kind of digging through that part a little bit, but I've injured my back a few times lifting, unfortunately, when I was young and dumb, but I'm not that wise yet either. I'm just older. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Hopefully we pick up some wisdom on the way. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Like, I always think I look back and then I'm like, wow, that guy was, you know, I look back on my younger self, that guy's an idiot. And I just keep doing that over and over. (laughs) So hopefully that means I'm getting wiser. (laughs) So do you want to mention your website again? Oh, yes. Uh, MasteryMedical.com. And Specific Spine is available on Amazon. So thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks, Mike. It was great.